This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ascension of Jesus, that in his ascension he has led captivity captive and has given good gifts to his people to build his body up into maturity and all Christ-likeness. We ask that you would do this in our hearts this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Ascension. I've been on vacation with my family for the last two weeks at the beach. It has been wonderful getting some much-needed rest and recuperation. But i got to say, I have missed y'all. Oh, I have missed worshiping with you, Ascension. I have missed being with the body of Christ assembled and growing in maturity and into the measure and stature of Christ right here in Pittsburgh at Ascension. It is good to be back. So today we are beginning a new series. We're going to be working through the lectionary readings that take us through the second half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now Ephesians has always been a favorite text of the church to preach and to expound because it was actually most likely a sermon that was written by Paul in captivity and then circulated to the various house churches in West Asia to be preached in all those various household churches. So because it's an actual sermon and not a letter per se, Ephesians is a highly rhetorical composition. And it employs what in the categories of ancient rhetoric is called epideictic rhetoric. I'll say it one more time so you can take notes. Epideictic rhetoric. Now this kind of rhetoric is a celebratory kind of rhetoric. It highlights and praises what is true about reality. The fundamental things, the most basic things, the bedrock things that you can't let go of. And it's designed to inculcate an attitude of awe and respect and even wonder in the hearer about these realities. So it's the language of witness and testimony. It's the language of someone who's experienced and lived the potent truth of these realities. So it's less about argument and proof and demonstration. It's more about unpacking the glories of what someone has experienced to be most true about the world. So this kind of rhetoric actually also requires a kind of shared frame of reference between the speaker and the hearer. Because if you don't have that experience, it doesn't connect. But if you have that experience, then this kind of rhetoric can build up in you a sense of excitement a sense of freshness about what, you, what you've experienced, what you've heard. It can become new and living again in you. So one of the functions of the speech is to remind the hearers that what the speaker is saying is their fundamental bedrock reality too. It's not just beautiful rhetoric to be appreciated. The hearers are being urged to remember and reclaim the power of these facts for them as well. In other words, the point is for the hearers to have revived in them a sense of the potency of this, to allow these words, these truths to be fresh again in them. And then the speaker will exhort them to live in accordance with these realities. If these realities are the most true thing about you and about the world, then you must live consistently with those truths. As the scholar Ben Witherington puts it, the goal of epideictic rhetoric is to help the audience to become what they already in part are. Become what they already in part are. So for that reason, Ephesians is essentially a two-part sermon. The first part celebrates the cosmic triumph of Christ over the powers and principalities, these ambiguous, dark forces, 
that Paul otherwise, other, other places names as sin and death. These powers that are kind of behind the scenes, manipulating things, manipulating power structures, abasing relationships, creating havoc and destruction. Christ has defeated those. And Paul, in, his, in the first part of this sermon, highlights that fact, revives the importance of that fact for the people. And the second part is an exhortation to live as if this triumph were actually true by maintaining the profession of Christ in the face of hostility, and especially by maintaining the bond of unity in Christ and growing increasingly into maturity, into Christ-likeness. And the hinge is here in in our reading from this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul has already, as I said, rehearsed with them the cosmic victory of Christ over sin and death. And he's reminded them of the great privilege which they as the church share having this new identity in Christ. They're already seated in the heavenly places with him. They already have had this new identity bestowed upon them. They are his brothers and sisters by adoption. Ephesians 1.5 says, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. The Ephesians, these churches in West Asia, have a new identity. They're not orphans. They are sons and daughters. They're co-heirs with Christ by the will of God. And that's true for all of us who belong to Christ too. And now Paul says to them, Therefore, Because these realities are bedrock. Because these realities are fundamental. Because these realities are the most basic. Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Therefore, because this is true, this must also be true. The life that you live must reflect. It must harmonize. There must be a congruence and a fittingness with what you actually are. Become what you already in part are. You have already been liberated from the power of sin and death. You are already seated in the heavenly places. You are already co-heirs with Christ. You are already ruling together with Christ. Now live as if that were true. Now listen, Paul is not saying this is an easy thing. It's not like flipping a switch in your head, right? He's not naive about how difficult this is. Paul knows just as we do that these powers and principalities that have been defeated by Christ are not less potent than they were before his victory over them. They continue to have force in the world. They continue to wreak havoc in our societies, and our relationships, in the church itself. They continue to have power. I mean, listen to how he begins the passage. He says, I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I mean, there is... There's a real serious gravity to what Paul is writing here because he's writing this truth from prison. Paul has skin in the game for the gospel. He has put his money where his mouth is. He has endured chains. He's endured indignities of all sorts, dangers, persecutions, imprisonments, all because the fundamental bedrock reality is Christ's victory. Paul is not naive about the ongoing force that the powers and principalities have in this world, of their ability to inflict great damage and devastation and destruction and to cause great sorrow. That is true, and it is true. We've all experienced its truth. Then what has Christ's victory actually accomplished for us? I think what Paul wants to say is that Christ's victory over them, Christ's victory over these powers and principalities, has accomplished in the here and now the possibility of resistance to them, 
of not being dominated or enslaved to these powers. The possibility of living as a free human being whose loyalty is to the risen and ascended Savior. And eventually, in the resurrection, to judge these dark forces together with Christ and to rejoice in their final destruction forever. That's the hope. That's what Christ has accomplished in his victory over the powers. You see, Christ has enabled this in his resurrection, in his, in his ascension. And in ascending, Paul says here in this, in this passage that he has led captivity itself captive. Did you catch that? He's led captivity itself captive. What we were enslaved to, Christ has enslaved. And he has set us free. He's liberated us from its power. And then he has given good gifts to all. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, he says in verse 7. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to all. See, Paul here is envisioning Christ's conquest of the powers through the metaphor of a victorious Roman general who's gone out to battle. He's defeated the enemy and he's returning from battle victorious and he's leading a train of captives with him. That these defeated peoples would, be, would now be slaves for the Roman Empire. That's a shocking image, actually. But, but Paul is not talking about Christ's conquest of the nations. Christ is not leading people in captivity back. He's leading the powers of sin and death. Those powers which have enslaved and subjugated all of humanity. He's leading those in captivity. He's led captivity itself captive. And he has liberated the nations. Paul's ascension theology is on profound display in this passage. The reason for Christ's ascent is that he might fill all things, Paul says here. What he means by that is that his life-giving humanity might be present to everyone to, and everywhere and at all times, not simply in one place, so that the church might be his body. He fills all things. He is present everywhere to everyone in his humanity by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's given good gifts to his church, that the church might be built up. What he does with his presence is to equip the saints for ministry by giving these gifts, to do battle against the powers, to be built up into maturity, to make a common profession, and to live in unity with one another. What the goal of giving these gifts is, is that the church might grow into the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what Paul says Christian maturity is. Don't miss this, because Paul elsewhere calls Christ the second Adam and the image of God. And elsewhere he says that the goal of the Christian life is to be transformed into the image of Christ. And that means that Christ is the second Adam. What Adam was, the prototype for all humanity, Christ is the new prototype. Transformation, maturity in the Christian life means being conformed into his image and likeness. That's the goal of the Christian life. That's the goal of belonging to his body. And in order for this maturation to happen, the most important thing, Paul tells us, maybe somewhat surprisingly, it's somewhat surprising to me, the most important thing that has to happen is that we must do everything in our power to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Maintain the bond of unity. That's Paul's admonition. That's the most important thing. Because only where this unity exists can these gifts be given the effect that they're meant to have in the body. Only then can they build up the body into maturity, into the measure and stature of Christ. Now just think about this for a second. 
If we don't have trust for one another, if we don't have respect for one another, if we're not speaking with kindness and with self-sacrificial love and, and truth to one another, can we really build each other up into the body of Christ? I think the answer is no. Paul is saying this unity is so crucial because maturity is so crucial. Christian maturity is the most important thing, and the thing that facilitates the maturity is the unity. Remember when I preached on 2 Corinthians a few weeks ago, I said that this unity is both expressed and built up through holy communion, according to Paul. And here Paul tells us again, just as he did in the Corinthian epistles, that this communion depends upon our exercise of humility, gentleness, patience, and mutual trust with one another. These are all dispositions that require us to remain in close relationship with one another and to speak with kindness and compassion to one another, to put our own skin in the game for one another, to love one another sacrificially. Because only where these dispositions exist can communion really be what it is. The holy communion that we receive is the sign which symbolizes what we are and through which Christ makes us what we're supposed to be. It's how he transforms us. St. Augustine said about it with characteristic eloquence, be what you see, receive what you are. Say that again. Be what you see, receive what you are. In other words, become what you already are in part. For Paul, there is nothing that is more important than this bond of unity in the body. Because that unity makes possible the expression of the gifts that Christ has, has given that generate maturity in the body. Our ability to be little Christ to each other and to the world. Now I mentioned already that the early church prized this sermon that was, that was given to the Ephesians. In part, this is because they prized Christian maturity above all things. They understood its centrality and its importance. They longed to be able to conform to the image and likeness of Christ because there were great risks associated with being a Christian in the ancient world. And every day they experienced a profound experiential contradiction between what they professed to be true, namely that Christ is sovereign over all, that he's dramatically confronted and defeated the powers and principalities in his death and resurrection and ascension, and the ongoing powerlessness and danger that they experienced on a daily basis. And they identified with St. Paul, who's a prisoner in chains for the sake of Christ. Christian identity and worship were illicit, seen as a threat to the well-being and the good order and the common good of the empire. So Christians were periodically subject to harassments, to slander, to lawsuits that would plunder their property, and on occasion to persecutions that required them to curse and reject Christ on pain of execution. These persecutions were seen as the test of whether they actually believed what they professed to believe, that they were actually expressing the maturity in Christ that St. Paul was calling them to. And daily they were confronted with this kind of either-or question. Is reality what Jesus' victory over the powers and principalities made it? Or is reality what Caesar Augustus and the Roman Empire says it is? Fundamentally, this is the question. Who is Lord, Caesar or Christ? And a great many Christians found the continuing force of the powers and principalities in daily life too great a contradiction to the realities they professed. And they gave up the faith rather than suffering for it. But there were others, the martyrs, that expressed this maturity and stood firm in the faith in the midst of hostility, in the midst of that contradiction between how things appeared to be and how they really are. 
The word martyr comes from the Greek word that means witness. And the church of all ages has prized these bold witnesses for Christ. We continue to read the accounts of their martyrdoms and to receive inspiration and boldness to continue proclaiming and living for Christ in the church when the contradiction between what we see and experience and what we profess to be true becomes painful, as it will. If it has not for you yet, I promise you it will. Among the most powerful of these early martyrdom accounts is that of St. Polycarp of Smyrna. Smyrna was the bishop of Smyrna, sorry, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna in the middle of the second century, and he was martyred at an elderly age. The account tells us that he was martyred at 86 years old. Incidentally, we believe that Polycarp was raised in a Christian home and baptized as an infant because he says at his arrest when the governor says, hey, curse Christ in order to preserve your life. 86 years have I served him, and he has never done me harm. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? Don't you long to be able to say that? I do. Long to be able to say that with Polycarp. But what is most striking to me about his martyrdom account is the way that it ends. Whichever silent editor pulled together the eyewitnesses account, eyewitness accounts of the martyrdom ends by taking note of where his death falls in history. Just like the Gospels take into account where Jesus' life and death are set in history. So that we know this is not mere myth. This is flesh and blood conquest over the powers of sin and death. This is what a human being liberated from the powers of sin and death looks like. With great serenity, the editor announces that Polycarp was arrested by Herod when Philip of Tralles was high priest and Statius Quadratus was proconsul. But while Jesus Christ was reigning forever and ever. Yeah, that's right. I don't know about you, but whenever I read that one sentence, my mind is blown. No matter what is happening, here is fundamental bedrock reality. Jesus' eternal reign has already begun. That is the truth. So no matter what your circumstances are, that is the controlling narrative. This announcement is so beautiful. It has a kind of plug-and-play quality to it, right? No matter what your historical circumstances are, you can make this affirmation about them. Hey, you're living when Donald Trump is president of the U.S. and Vladimir Putin is the president of Russia, but while Jesus Christ is reigning forever and ever, amen? You are living through sickness or disability or cancer or the death of a child or a spouse or through financial pressures, but guess what? Jesus Christ is reigning forever and ever, amen? You get the point? It's just what the novelist Flannery O'Connor wrote in a letter while she was suffering from the lupus that would eventually end her life. The virgin birth, the incarnation, the resurrection, these are the true laws of the flesh and the physical. Death, decay, and destruction are the suspension of those laws. What we see, what we hear, what we touch, what we taste are these anxiety-producing realities that dominate the news cycle that put... put, uh, into question and threaten those things that we value and hold dear. And the Christian hope is not that Christ is going to take away our suffering right now. It's not the Christian hope. He may very well allow us to endure all of it, to live without resolution, to live without healing, to drink the cup of suffering to the very dregs with him, to follow him not just to Gethsemane, but all the way to the cross. Now check this out. Paul is in chains for Christ. It's not going to get better for him. He's going to be executed by order of Caesar in Rome. Polycarp dies by being burned at the stake. And unless Christ returns, every person in this room is going to die. 
promise you that. The inescapable conclusion testified to again and again in Scripture and in the Christian tradition is that maturity happens precisely in this crucible of pain and difficulty and suffering. This painful experiential contradiction between what we see and touch and hear and what we profess to be true in Jesus Christ is part of how we mature into Christ. Our hope is not that we will get to live comfortably and die in our beds peacefully at an old age. It's not a bad hope, but it's not the distinctively Christian hope. The Christian hope is that in the midst of sorrow and painful circumstances, we will get to do this together as his body, and that we will get to make Christ look beautiful and powerful and attractive through our obedience in the midst of these troubling realities. Because he is our true Lord. And in the obedience that we give to him, we already share with him the eternal glory forever through the resurrection. Even now, he is the Lord of the powers of principalities. Even now, we participate in his victory through the gifts that he gives to build up his body by preserving the bond of unity. When we live in the bond of unity, when we live in patience and humility and kindness to one another in the church, we have already won. Why? because we are no longer living in slavery to the powers of sin and death. We are already resisting them and refusing their authority. We are proclaiming, you have no more power here because Jesus Christ has set me free. We are maturing already when we do that into the measure and stature of Christ. This is the reign of Christ making inroads into his body. Jesus' victory over the powers and principalities in the heavenly realms, that is the truest thing. It makes possible our freedom from and our resistance to those powers and principalities in our lives. A space is opened up between their apparent dominance and their actual powerlessness so that the church in every age can faithfully profess and follow Christ and embody his kingdom no matter what else is happening. Hebrews 2.15 says this as clearly as can be. Christ has liberated us from slavery to the power of death. No more. So my friends, let us live together in humility and patience and gentleness and self-giving sacrificial love for one another. we got to have embodied flesh and blood conversations with one another. We have to tell the truth to each other in love. We must be honest and transparent and open with one another. we got to get in each other's houses, around tables with food. Y'all, if you're not part of a community group, join one. Talk to me about it. That's my domain of responsibility. Talk to me about getting a community group. I want to put you in one. Study these words of Paul together. These are words of power. These are words of life. It's hard to believe, but St. Paul tells us that these small things, not grand world historical gestures, that's how we express the victory of Christ over the powers. Living the kingdom is humble stuff. It's little stuff. It's unseen stuff but it's how we express the reality that we are already seated in the heavenly places with Christ. The heavenly places where the powers and principalities of sin and death have already been purged. You are already there with him. You are already participating in that reality. You were no longer slaves to the power of death, St. Paul says. So walk in a manner that befits that reality. Y'all, the power of death is social. It lays waste to our relationships with one another. It lays waste to whole institutions and societies and nations. So the love of Christ which destroys death must likewise be social. 
It must parallel that. It must, too, take territory away from death. Where before there was suspicion and hatred, now there must be truth and love and beauty and grace. Let me tell you this. Polycarp knew it. His editor knew it. St. Paul knew it. Whatever good things you love are threatened or have been destroyed, no matter who is ruling on the earthly thrones and the authorities and powers, Jesus Christ is reigning forever and ever. Render your obedience to that Lord rather than the Lord of death. Love the church. Live together in that bond of peace. Let the gifts that Christ has given to each one of us blossom into beautiful maturation in Christ. Let the Holy Communion that you are about to receive be truly who you are. Let it make you into who you are meant to be. And remember those words of St. Augustine that I told you earlier. Be what you see. Receive what you are. Amen.